Oh my God. Oh my God, you guys, Dylan. I can't believe we're actually recording this, but today's episode features the unbelievably the talented- incomparable. Icon of our lives, Laura, Laura Bell, Bell Bundy. Bundy. Can you believe? That's right, you know and love her from Legally Blonde the Musical, which we all watch together on MTV. And if you love Laura Bell, and if you love Legally Blonde and Broadway in general, here's a couple other episodes you might enjoy. We chatted with Carol Lindsay from Newsies and Wicked. We chatted with Taylor Louderman, who also played Elle at one point, but was, of course, Tony nominated for Mean Girls. Oh my God, you're so right. And Mean Girls, in a way, was the Broadway spiritual successor to Legally Blonde in some ways, the marketing campaign itself. Sure, we also chatted with Anne Harada from Avenue Q and Smash. Oh my God, and I remember on the episode with Nick Adams, we talked about Legally Blonde because his boyfriend was in it at some point. Right, yeah, he, he played was the, 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 UPS, the guy. UPS guy. Oh, Bend and snap. We love Legally Blonde. We love Laura Bell Bundy. And if you want a little bit of extra bonus content, please check out our Patreon. The link is in the episode notes. Support us. You might even get a little extra surprise from some of our guests this month. And there's bonus interviews. So what are you waiting for? Now on with the show. Press play. Curtain of an hour in. It's time to take spin. The shade and tea to spill. Ooh, Ooh drama. Oh, that's a tweet. Did they book? Who got nom? They option no. Oh, I'm not well. What, what star will we talk to today? Oh, that's a gag, honey. Say no more. Drama. Drama. Welcome to Drama, a podcast that covers theater, pop culture, love, and life in New York, New York City, City and, and the, world. the world. I'm Connor McDowell. And I'm Dylan McDowell. And I don't want to spend too much time talking before we jump into this because when you say icon, mm-hmm. when you say legend, that's right, in the room, dream guest. And it all started in like, I would say seventh grade. <laughs> Yes, as we drink the fountain of youth here, I just want to say, are. no, we were, we were, young. it was an impressionable age, I suppose we should say, that this legend came into our lives because we had, you know, a couple of years before done our first youth theater production of Beauty and the right. Beast, and then Wicked came to town, and it yes. was like Rent and Wicked were these gateway drugs into- and Hairspray, the Hairspray movie came out. How could I forget? something aired on MTV. Something- that is burned into my mind, mm-hmm. heart and soul yep. forever and ever. It's life lessons that I carry with me every day from yes. this this filmed for MTV Broadway musical. Yeah, and we have the star with us today. And she's a woman of tomorrow, today, yesterday, the future, forever. I'm, I'm actually gagged, Dylan. Connor, please bring her in because I have so many questions. I know. Oh, my God. I'm so happy. All right. Oh, my God, you guys. Our guest today is the stage and screen sensation who stole all of our hearts as Elle Woods in Legally Blonde the Musical on Broadway and MTV. For her time as Little Miss Woods, Elle, she was nominated for both a Tony Award and Drama Desk Award for Best Leading Actress in a Musical. Additionally, she made her Broadway debut as Amber Von Tussle in Hairspray and stood by for Kristen Chenoweth in Wicked. She was Drama Desk and Outer Critics Circle nominated for leading Ruthless, the musical, off-Broadway as a teenager, later appearing in The Sound of Music, Gypsy, The Honeymooners, and recently received an ovation nomination for her role as Charity in Kathleen Marshall's Sweet 
Sweets charity. You recognize her from over a hundred television appearances in Perfect Harmony, Good Behavior, American Gods, How I Met Your Mother, Heart of Dixie, Fuller House Scream Queens, AJ and the Queen, Anger Management, and much more. Films include Dream Girls, Jumanji, Life with Mikey, Adventures of Huck Finn, After the Reality, and the award-winning Beauty Mark, among others. She's a recording artist and songwriter with acclaimed albums galore, and her upcoming Woman of Tomorrow is available now. Our guest is a writer, comedy queen, producer, director, sketch artist, podcaster, wife, and mother. Please welcome to drama, Laura Laura Bell Bundy. Hi, guys. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Can you just feel how excited and happy we are? I do. I feel the energy. I know you've got a got a big day, big week, because when the time that this comes out, your new album will be out. And we're going to talk all about it. We're going to get into everything. But first, we have to just ask you, are you well? <laughs> ask my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I am well. I will tell you that this year of uh, pandemic has sent me down some interesting paths internally. You know, a lot of changes and shifts have have happened as a result of um, being stuck inside with myself, you know, mm-hmm. and my family. And uh, we've we made the move from California to New Jersey. We now live an hour outside of the city. And oh wow! On an eighteen acre farm with sheep. And, you know, we just decided to do this. I mean, we we lived in L.A. for eight, nine years and we just picked mm-hmm. it up and left and went to a place I've never lived before. You know, so there's some things that have changed like that. And I think I experienced anxiety, real palatable anxiety for the first time in my life this year. And it mm-hmm. came from like nothing. Do you know what I mean? Like we wake up mm-hmm. and you're like, I have no idea why I feel anxiety right now. I just don't know. And I think a lot of it was from normally my outlet is to perform. I deal with all of my emotions on the stage. I deal with it or, or in my work. Like if I'm feeling angry, I deal with it. If I'm feeling confusion, I deal with it. Whatever I'm dealing with, I have an outlet for it, my expression, except for this year. Mm. And I think that some of those emotions got all bottled up and I was like, what's going on? Now I'm feeling pretty good though. Yeah. Things are starting to change a little bit. I'm glad you were able to pinpoint that that was what was lacking in your life in the past year where you normally were able to get out all of your, every, every emotion in the world, you know? Yeah. You know what? I think it is because a couple of times this year I made music videos and I was in the middle of those. And I was like, why do I feel so normal and good? Mm. Because this is who I am. This is what I do. I create. And, and if you don't have, if you don't have your normal outlet for self-expression and creativity, all that stuff gets bottled up. And then you're just sort of like dealing with it. And you can't, you can't, you can't really place it. But I think, I think that's a good thing to experience in life is to be able to identify what it is that is your coping mechanism and sure. is your way of expression that makes you feel good, that provides energy for you. And what is it? And then I had to then go figure out, all right, what, what am I going to do now that this is mm. not something for me? Is it that I just need to write? Do I need to like write more songs. The other thing is I was dealing with an album that was complete. So that wasn't a form of self-expression either. Oh, it's been in the can for a while. Been in the can. I had yeah. one song we were finishing up and that felt re- that was another moment where I was like, Ooh, key key. I, mm-hmm. I feel so normal and good here. Why? Cause I am creating. 
Yes. So I imagine as a as an actress, then specifically in the projects you're acting in, then the creative process was probably most f- fulfilling for you. You know, the workshopping, the the first time you get to dive into that character, the maybe even the preview process. You know, you have nailed it. When I was little. It was like, I want to be on stage and I want everybody to look at me and clap for me. And, you know, that was it. I want to make people laugh. And that was it. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to get to the opening night. Mm-hmm. But now I am a rehearsal whore. <laughs> <laughs> Love nothing more than like stepping into a rehearsal space and sharing ideas and getting feedback and trying things and trying things again. And, and I love it. It is such a fun process for me. And I love the process of, of um, creating a song in the studio and adding a little bit of this and a little of that. No, no, stop that. Take that. Go. Can we speed it up about, you know, mm. 2 BPM, whatever. I love that whole process so much. It's such a glory. Like, you cannot get me to leave. <laughs> if anybody has ever worked with me on a show there she is picking up all her shit, trying to get her out of the rehearsal halls. Like also because I have spread my stuff around all day. I have like two uh-huh. water bottles, a tea, a bag, a, you know, a couple pairs of dance shoes, you know, and I'm trying to put it all in my bag. And that's part of the reason why I'm the last to go. But a lot of it is that I'm trying to figure it out and I'll go home at night and I'll sit in a bath because I like to bathe. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> No, but I just take, I'll take a bath. I'll let that water run. There's no cell phone distracting me. There's no emails coming in. And I, and I can, those ideas start to pour in of what I couldn't figure out that day at rehearsal. And then I come back the next day and I'm like, I think I figured it out. Oh, that is incredible. You take your work home with you, but it's in, it's in a healthy way. Yeah, I can't, that's the thing. It's like, it's, it's really interesting. I've tried to figure out what is healthy, you know, what is mm-hmm. healthy like in terms of taking your work home. You know, a lot of people say, Hey, yeah, six o'clock, five o'clock, whatever is the end of the day. You can mm-hmm. get there and you go. But I think when you're a creative person, there's this element of obsession that mm-hmm. we have over trying to make things work. And I think our work hours are different. Oh, definitely. I think we stop once we've figured it out. And that's when we can take our break. You know, when the creative process is essentially just, um, you are a conduit, right, from a higher mm-hmm. source that gives you these ideas that then comes forth. If you just shut that down and you're like, yeah, I don't feel like it right now, you're almost stopping yourself. And I think it'll come in your dreams. It's going to come either way. I remember Jerry Mitchell saying, I had another dream. We're doing this. <laughs> you know, he would just dream up choreography or dream up a scene. And I relate to that. You got to make sure you keep like a notepad beside your bed or your something like that. <laughs> I did it last night. Wow. Okay. So Woman of Tomorrow, this incredible album, which we heard a little sneak peek. We heard some of the tunes. I absolutely love it. It's timely. It's the lyrics are genius, but it also has a little bit of a nostalgic element to it. Like I, I, I absolutely love it. American Girl is one of my favorite songs in the video is incredible too. And what was the last song that you finished? I I am so curious now that you said you were, you took a little time with that one. We finished a song called Red Rover. um, And Red Rover is essentially featuring my songwriting partner as the lead singer. And I'm singing backup. Mm -hmm. Um, We wanted to do that on the album because, because sisterhood is about holding the ladder and Mm. letting your sister climb. And so that is a part of what we wanted to do on the album in terms of I'm going to feature the woman that I wrote this album with in a way where she's the star. But the concept of the song is about sexual assault. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. It's a little, little heavy of a topic, but one in five women experience sexual assault in their lifetime. So it's not a topic when we're talking about women's issues that we can leave out. Right. It's uh, red roll over, anyone come over, anyone come over. And the idea is that there she is, this is happening to her and nobody is stepping in. And we based it on um, someone's real experience that they mm. had. So um, that was the last we had been kind of churning with it. And it took a lot of time to figure out what the song was going to be. And then I started to sing it and I didn't like the way I sounded in it. I liked the way Shay sounded in it. And I said, this is your song. So it took us a second. And, you know, with the pandemic, you know, it's like, well, how are we going to record this? So we figured out how to record with each other in a virtual way. Oh, wow. But yeah, so that was, that's the last song, the last song on the album. And we also wrote a song this year called Unbecoming, which is about unattainable beauty standards, but that's not on the album. That's going to be actually for a film. Oh, cool. Amazing. You are so creative, like even just going through your credits and I mean, you are a YouTube star and you've been writing sketches and just all the ideas in the album are so smart and so timely that, I mean, it, you have such a grasp on the world. It, it's really, really impressive. Thank you. Well, again, my partner, Shay, she's my partner in feminist crime. <laughs> it's our joint observations of the world seen through the lens of being a woman. And for me, it's the lens of being a wife and a mother. And for mm-hmm. her, it's a single woman in pursuit of goals and dreams. And and we both have that too, but I think we're, we're able to tackle this album from different perspectives, which is really, I think, important when you're talking about women's issues is to keep in mind the entire scope of what it means to be a woman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's why we, we have a companion podcast too called Women of Tomorrow, where yes. we, we delve into every song on the album, but we also delve into the history of the, the topic of each mm-hmm. song and how that then impacts us today. And we have a guest to talk about how that impacts us today and then ways that we can move forward and solutions uh, where we can get beyond these particular issues. I kind of like to call the album a soundtrack to the women's movement. You know, because we deal with we live with equal pay, unattainable beauty standards, our obsession with social media with a song called Digital Disease, which I think might be my close to my favorite on the album. It's my favorite. I have the digital disease, Laura Bell. <laughs> I, I I mean, it's it's so relatable. And of course, you're looking at it in a, in a lens of how it affects women. But as a gay man, I also feel the pressures and the, you know, it's, it's in my brain. Will this make a good post? How will I look? Should I edit this? Should I have someone help me with the caption, with, the, with teeth whitening? It's, it's a disease. And how, what's the cure? You know, I don't know if there is one. You know, my partner, Shay, she says obsession with social media is a disease, right? It's digital disease. It's like alcoholism, but it's not because you don't need alcohol to do your job. And for a lot of us, the social media thing is a part of the promotion that we have to be heard. You know, it's it's actually a place where activists can come and be heard when they're shut down in other places. Right. And so you can cultivate a following. I think the thing is to be mindful about what it is that you're posting and the way that you post and what it means to you when you do. You know, mm-hmm. obviously people hate seeing all the time you're advertising something that's kind of mm, inauthentic, but why don't we show it an authentic version of ourselves that doesn't show that we've photoshopped ourselves or we have a skinnier waist and a bigger ass and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, bigger eyes and a whatever is 
filtered is going on. It's so ironic, I think, because you get on social media and you have this opportunity to be liked, but we are liked by people who don't even know who we are for the wrong reasons. And for Mm. posting an image of ourselves that is curated, that is not real, truthful, or authentic. And what's ironic about that is the real way to connect with other people is to show your scars, is to show the real, truthful, authentic, vulnerable versions of ourselves. That's when we connect. So what is it that we are going for? You know, do we want real connection or do we want to just have people like us, people we don't even effing know like Mm -hmm. us for, you know, a hot photo? It's just really, I don't know. I think we can, we have to really balance what is real in life with what is fun, Mm -hmm. you know? And oh, not yeah. take it too seriously. You're giving me Brene Brown vibes talking about vulnerability. <laughs> I love me some Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. She's incredible. I was just going to say the podcast is amazing. Yeah, so many amazing women. Marianne Williamson. I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> we, we actually went down a, uh, a rabbit hole uh, talking about social media with her. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we're going to save that little blip for when we put out the digital disease album because we ended up talking to her for an hour about all kinds of different topics. And I couldn't believe we actually had an opportunity to interview her. Um, She, I did this uh, event in New York City at the town hall called Double Standards, where two Broadway stars or comedians or, you know, recording artists came together to sing a duet on a jazz standard, all in the name of women's rights and women's health. And she came and spoke and we connected there. And that's why she agreed to do my podcast. But when I was 21 years old, I was doing hairspray and I, there was like a, the set piece, you know, the set piece that, um, that Edna Turnblad is on that yeah. comes out, that's kind of raised and With the iron and everything. Ironing board. Well, when that was backstage, I used to put my books on it. Like I was going to NYU at the time. So I would study back there, but I would also read a return to love by Marianne Williamson. Mm, full circle moments. I love her. And I think my, honestly, my first introduction to her was when, you know, of course, all the Democratic candidates were coming up for the primary. And I think that her messaging got mixed up in the whole circus of all of it. And it, we couldn't see that her ideas were incredible. Everything she was saying, so wise, grown, realistic, hopeful, but it got, it got lost in there. Her solutions are root solutions. Mm-hmm. Her solutions are not Band-Aids. All of these politicians have solutions that have to do with let's just cover it up with health insurance. She's like, no, let's fix your health issues by giving you good food and access to fitness and wellness so that you don't need a prescription for heart medication by the Mm -hmm. time you're 50 because you actually have non-GMO and organic foods in your grocery store that are affordable. So, you know, there are things like that that she says that I think a lot of people thought were woo-woo, but I'm like actually uh-huh. real and then she'll talk she she will talk about racism in a way that is very poignant and important mm-hmm. so and she believes that she she's been for reparations for oh my gosh 20 years and she's yes. on stage and she was the only candidate that was like i am for reparations look what we have done in our history right and I remember feeling chills and I, and the audience just going crazy when she said that. Did, were you watching that? Particular- oh yeah. We'll never forget that. And it's, it's amazing. Then a year later, the black lives matter movement happens and 
people who didn't speak up back then are suddenly, you know, it's interesting. It's, mm-hmm. there's a whole bit to it, but Laura, you are amazing. And we love the podcast. We love the album. Everyone else is going to. Now you mentioned being backstage at Hairspray, doing your homework. And that was a little earlier in your career, but we'd like to go a little further back perhaps. Connor, why don't you take this one? We'd like to ask all of our guests about this ring of keys moment inspired by Fun Home of this moment of recognition. When you realize that you loved performing or the arts, entertainment, anything like that, it doesn't have to be a moment, it could be moments, but do you remember when you realized that you loved the arts? If I go back to the very beginning, I used to sit in the windowsill and sing Maybe from Annie and make up like my own dramas. Oh yeah, drama. I think music really was the entryway for me. Uh, My dance teacher told my mom that I was disrupting dance class because I was singing to every song (laughs) very loudly during the class. But she, she was joking and she said, she followed it up with, I think she's got a good voice and I think you should put her in singing lessons. And then that same teacher then started choreographing song and dance routines that I would perform at these competitions and win. And I think when I was like, shit, I can win trophies and signed autographs by Debbie Gibson. I'm going to keep doing this. You know, so I, from very early age, singing was a part of it, but also I was a mimic. So my first time going to New York, I was listening to all the voices and people talking like this. And I walked back home and, you know, and I had a Southern accent as a kid. And then I came back home and I was talking like this. So I had it like I would just do impersonations of people. And I realized that I could make people laugh. I love that. And then I really think uh, I just always really enjoyed being on stage. I loved doing Radio City Musicals, Christmas Spectacular. That was my first show Mm -hmm. I did. But maybe doing Ruthless and playing a character that had like genuine bits of comedy that got laughs and understanding that that relationship with the audience and comedic timing. I think that probably sealed the deal in terms of my love for performing and how that can impact a group, impact a group of people that are watching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still didn't know as a kid, I was like, you know, I might grow up and be a doctor or I might, I might be, you know, a lawyer or I might, you know, and I'm, I'll just play one on TV. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, and you did, and Scream Queens. And then, of course, you played one of the most famous lawyers of our time. Right. Well, you know, here's, you know, when you take the ACT? Yeah. Unfortunately. I know. It's awful. (laughs) There's a test called the plan you take as a sophomore, Mm -hmm. and they tell you what career you might be right for. Well, mine said a lawyer. Well, there it is. It was all faded. We should have told Jerry Mitchell that. Should have told them back in the day. My plan test said I was going to be a lawyer. What they didn't realize it is it would only just be for two hours a day, eight times a week. God, I forgot about the plan. I'm sorry. I'm having a moment here. (laughs) So between Ruthless and hairspray. Did you stay in New York that whole time and go to school? No. So no? I lived in New York City uh, from the time I was nine till I was 14. And I went to middle school there. I was doing Radio City Music Hall. Then I did Ruthless. And then I, I ended up doing a tour of The Sound of Music with Marie Osmond. So my seventh grade year, I think I was just on the road. And then for high school, I went back to Kentucky, where I'm from. And I went to 
high school there. And I, I, my freshman year played soccer and my sophomore, junior, senior year, I ran uh, track and cross country. And that was like my life. I dated a football player. Um, I did do the school play. I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. I did the school play. I uh, did. I was Sandy in Greece. Of course. I was babe in pajama game. And I was Lola in damn Yankees. Oh my goodness. And the directors of the show let me have a lot of input. Yeah. What do the other kids think? They're like, oh, she she was in New York. You know, she with Britney Spears and Natalie Portman and, and Ruthless. Well, it's funny because I didn't, a lot of people didn't know that I was friends with Britney Spears. A lot of people didn't know that I was friends with Natalie Portman. I just sort of, you know, I just didn't talk about it, mm-hmm. um, even in high school. But I was in the movie Jumanji. Right. So when I was in ninth grade, I went to a school called the Lexington School, which um, I had started going to elementary school. So I knew all of those friends. And so it ended in the ninth grade. It was almost like a prep year before high school. Okay. And so a lot of us ended up going to the same high school together in sophomore year, but we entered as sophomores, which was actually awesome to enter with like 22 people that you were really close with beginning a sophomore year. Cause you could feel like a total outcast. Sure. Everybody knew that I was in the movie Jumanji in this high school. So when I would run around for track and cross country, when I would run around that, the football team was inside and there were a couple of football players that would go, Jumanji! <laughs> when I would run around the thing and it was so embarrassing. And then I ended up becoming friends with them. And then my nickname in high school was G. Jumanji! Would literally go down the hallway, G. That is hilarious. So there was an awareness that I would do it, but I think at least I'm, I thought and I hope that I then began to blend in and become a normal person, but it was interesting that I was. And that guy that started that is now related to me through marriage. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> what are the My odds? My cousin married his cousin. That's very, very Midwest, very Kentucky, <laughs> like, you know. My cousin married his cousin. We all go to the weddings and the funerals together now. That's, that's amazing. And, you know, I can only think that, you know, being normal, as you said, over those years would have shaped so much of your later experiences and your ability to songwrite and tap into these different characters and sketches and the mindset of the every person. It's not like you were a showbiz kid who was sitting at the audition. You know, there's that SNL character of like the young child actor who's like, the weather's amazing today. Like trying to talk like an adult and everything. Oh yeah, that was me. If you of me at like 10 years old, I sound like I'm 30. And I think I spent, you know, the moment I became an adult trying to be a kid again, because some of that childhood was, I was not able to be a child. I had to, I I had to be a professional. Because you did pageants too. Yeah. I mean, I did a pageant at five, won a new car, crazy (laughs) shit. But it got, it got me into the business. And I was going to New York City in the summers from the time I was six years old until I was nine. And we stayed there for, uh, you know, and I was seeing all kinds of stuff. I remember I was living in this uh, 31st street. Now this is when New York, like we call it, we call it the pre-Giuliani time when you know, rats on the streets, rocking over, running over your flip-flops and triple X theaters everywhere. And it was grimy and it was crime. It was crazy. And this particular area that I lived in was kind of seedy, but now it's like very, very yuppie, like trying to get an apartment there oh, for yeah. less than $5,000 a month. But this particular place was like a walk up kind of a loft. We called it the rat hole because there was mice and stuff that would run around and get stuck on sticky traps. And I would just scream. This place was right across the street from an abortion clinic, 
right next to a Lebanese restaurant. And it was down the street from where the hookers would walk up and down. And I would, I remember saying, you know, seeing this scantily clad woman who I thought was very pretty leaning into this car window. And I said, mommy, what's that lady doing? And she said, well, that lady's doing things you shouldn't do until you're married for money. (laughs) And she goes, see that man over there? That's what you call a pimp. And she works for him. And he's says he's protecting her, but he's probably dragging her. He's telling me all this stuff. And then I see people picketing outside of a, the abortion clinic. I was eight. Yeah, talk about an education. Uh, yeah, and then I would go to the Lebanese restaurant and they would teach me how to write my name in Arabic. And I, there was a belly dancer. And it was, so I was like thrust into a completely different culture. And I think two of the most important things for me were that I got out of a small Southern Christian conservative bubble at a very young age to see what else the world had to offer Mm -hmm. and to see the truth. And that I, I did a show with drag Queens. I did my first gay pride parade at 10. (laughs) Wow. And I loved, loved the gay community at a very young Mm -hmm. age. So you have this person with this mindset that then goes back to high school in Kentucky with a bunch of kids that haven't seen what I've Mm -hmm. seen. And I never really felt like I could truly sit in the same mindset with them. I just couldn't. Sure. I just could not because of all that I had been exposed to and saw. But I enjoyed it and I, I got to learn what real life is like. And I think that I do have a sense of understanding when it comes to when we sit on polar opposite sides about belief systems when it comes to the urban cities versus the rural communities. Mm -hmm. But I do know what that thinking is on both sides. Oh, absolutely. That's invaluable. And, you know, I, I we, we need to talk about Legally Blonde. There's no way to, for me to transition into this, but... I know. You were saying that when you were in seventh grade, you were touring the country and the sound of music. When we were in seventh grade, we were... Memorizing your line readings of <laughs> just everything. Everything Elle Woods. I mean... Because, of course, it aired on MTV, as we said. And I remember the weekend that it aired. And it aired maybe, like, every night on MTV that weekend. And we had, like, DVR'd it. And I remember coming to school that Monday, and everyone watched it. It was the water cooler topic. It truly was. As these little theater kids, we thought we were, like, in on it. Like, we thought we knew, like, oh, well, this acting choice. And it, it wasn't just one performance. They filmed it over a couple. Like, we had, like, the scoop on everything. But, Laura Bell, seriously, your performance as Elle Woods is one of the most iconic, powerful, legendary Broadway performances I've ever seen. And to, to now see how young you were. I mean, you were, like, what, 27, 28? like. Seven. 27. You're the same age we are now. Like, I can't imagine carrying this multi-million dollar musical, not only that on Broadway, but from this beloved movie. I mean, if you turn on VH1 or Bravo anytime, Legally Blonde is playing. I mean, it is so still in the the zeitgeist. And what what I love about the musical, it also full disclosure, it's like one of my all-time faves. No, really? <laughs> but it takes an already fantastic work of art and elevates it in a way where like, it's like the colors are painted in even more. Like it, it really, it's everything. It should still be running on Broadway. It should still be well, running. We were lucky that, I, and I don't think people realized at the time, I think they were like, oh my God, they're taping our show. Like that can't be good for our show. And I loved it. I loved that we were going to have a professionally filmed mm-hmm. version of our show. So I could show my kids how thin their mommy was. <laughs> No, but it's nice because 
I don't have a recording of Ruthless. Mm -hmm. That stuff is illegal to film a show. And that kind of sucks because there's something about an original cast and being able to film that and go like, oh my God, this is, these were the people that did the thing. Although we didn't have all the original cast members, but for the most part, you're seeing most of the original cast do the show. And that's, that was exciting. That's exciting that we have it. What I will say is um, I think I gave better performances later after that. Hmm. Yeah, I watch that now and I'm like, you know what? I was I I was more connected a little bit later in my run. Some of my laughs and timing were better and you know, but that's what happens when you get into a run of a show. And of course, I'm very self-critical. I don't like to watch myself. I'm amazed that you even did. So that's that's incredible. Looking back, what what did you learn from L? I think I I learned a lot. I would sort of consider that show and that time in my life where I went from being a girl to being a woman. Hmm. And I think that that's what happens to L too. I started to see the world differently while I was doing that show and I really became an adult. And so I think that there was like some simultaneous growing going on between me and Elle um, that I was, um, I'm a positive and optimistic person. And I think my energy naturally matches Elle Wood's energy. And I think that when people get cast into shows, they get cast because their energy matches the energy of the character. Um, And so for me, it was Reese Witherspoon is a Southern girl. I'm a Southern girl. She grew up in Tennessee. I grew up in Kentucky. There's a kill them with kindness kind of vibe going on with Elle Woods that we both experienced growing up. It makes sense. So that I connected with her, but I really do think that there's something about setting goals and going for certain things and believing in yourself. And when you are told, no, you can't do it, that that is great ammunition. And I am that person. You tell me you don't think I can do it. You just gave me the ammunition I need. Mm -hmm. And some of that is a little bit from L. Oh, yeah. I guess also felt like I became as an actress far more connected to my material. Mm-hmm. And you were nominated for a Tony Award in a crazy, that was a crazy packed season. It was, it was a crazy year. I, I feel very fortunate that I was recognized because there were some people that were not recognized mm-hmm. for great performances that year, including Kristen Chenoweth for The Apple Tree. Right. Who, of course, you stood by for in Wicked. The lucky few who got to see you is Glinda. I mean, it was the mega hit already at that point. And you were you were sort of there because she had other commitments, like concert dates? Doing Candide that year, she did a movie, The Pink Panther, and they wanted to know that they had somebody that could cover those chunks of time in addition to any time that she got sick. So mm-hmm. I was hired and I was freshly off of doing Hairspray at the time. And it was a really, it was an important job for me to do, I got to say. Like, it's, it's the hardest job in the world is mm-hmm. to be a cover, swing, understudy, or standby. Man, it's, woo. First time I ever went on was the first time I'd ever been in the damn bubble. Oh my God. Wow. And you're like, oh my God. I mean, before the show, they put me in to make sure it worked. Mm-hmm. But I was like, all I kept thinking was when the curtain opened, oh my God, I'm in a bubble. You know, like, <laughs> anything else I was supposed to say, it was like, that's the only thing I could think of. Mm-hmm. And the lights are so bright and you're never done the show with the cast. You've never done the show with the cast at all. You've just done understudy rehearsals with like four or five people. And was Adina Elphaba at the time? She was. 
Okay, wow. So this was like literally in the early days of Wicked. All of the celebs are coming in to see the show. Was there anyone super famous that you were thrilled that got to see you as Glinda? I don't know. Obviously, Jerry Mitchell saw you. Jerry Mitchell, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I think when any of the super famous people were going to come and see the show and they found out Kristen Shenoweth wasn't on, they exchanged their tickets. (laughs) Or a night where she was going to be there, you know, and that's the other thing that you deal with as as a standby is like, and the role of Glinda tonight will be played by Laura Bell Bundy. And it's like, oh, (laughs) you know, that's that's just kind of what you what you have to be okay with. And you Mm -hmm. just don't know is going to happen. It's humbling, I'm sure. But you know what's funny is that a lot of people who are standbys for people in show, they go on to do other things. So mm-hmm. always an interesting, I think if you've already seen a show once, it's exciting to see the standby, right? Oh, you know, yes. Oh, yeah. I want to see what they do, you know, what's different. It's kind of fun. And I feel like anytime I did the show, when I did Legally Blonde with an understudy that went on, um, it activated our show. We were listening. Different things were happening. It's There's a lot of energy that elevates when um, an understudy goes on. Oh, I'm sure like, you know, Orfe is so singular that if, I mean, I know that Natalie Joy Johnson eventually did Paulette on the tour. Was she the Broadway cover? Yes, she was. She was. I know Leslie Kritzer might've done it. And um, uh, Gillian Gillahan. Oh yes. And she's unreal. And you know, no one can be Orfe. So they're their own Paulette. And then you're playing off of that energy. I'm sure it was just so exciting. And knowing you and your creative energies. Yeah. And Andy Carl as uh, Emmett. That happened. Andy Carl was the Emmett cover. And that was just so fun. Because he's he's so different than Christian. Oh, yeah. He's also just as equally brilliant and hilarious. Mm-hmm. You know, just having his take on things is fun. And then, of course, <laughs> you know, Orpe and Andy are married and she's like, oh, he's cute. You know, that's they're leaving. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm gagged. You know what? The Lily Blonde original cast is filled with legends. I mean, you, Christian, Andy, Orpe, Michael, Annalie Ashford. I mean, you know, everyone... Leslie, Leslie Kritzer, unbelievable. And you were so funny and amazing as Elle. And I just have to thank you for your performance because it certainly inspired me as a young person. And I think what's so timeless about Legally Blonde is at the core of it, I mean, aside from being a feminist piece that is timeless, is it's about getting your heart broken and taking that heartbreak and it fixing your vision and making you realize no, I can be better than I was before. I can be stronger and I can learn. And maybe the path isn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not done learning. I'm always going to keep growing on this path. And it's it's legendary. So thank you, Laura Bell. I had a blast doing it. And I'm glad that you, you felt connected to it too. Oh my God. Well, this has been amazing. <laughs> okay. So we're s- sadly wrapping up. I have, I could ask you about a, a million of your other credits, your music, everything, literally, but we've got to say goodbye soon. But before we go, we end on a dose of drama, which is something we're we're thinking about, we're recommending, we want to rant about, rave about, anything at all. Um, Dylan, do you want to kick us off on this, this fine day? I do, because I need to know what it was like working with RuPaul on AJ and the Queen. Oh, so fun. I loved working with RuPaul, Uh, not just for, for, okay. Talk about iconic. mm -hmm. Um, And just a person who is, you know, you think about, you think about his career going back and doing work of girl, you know, my God, how 
bold, how mm-hmm. bold to come out and have a pop song and drag. Mm-hmm. You know, how, and then and then to take that and just sort of open up, have really be responsible for a cultural shift mm-hmm. with drag race and having straight people from the Midwest love this show. I know. And change the cultural thinking and the collective consciousness around drag, being gay, queer, trans. I mean, he is, I just love him so much. But then working with him is like a whole other thing. It's so fun. (laughs) And we would do like dirty charades. Rue loves dirty charades, yeah. Between... Uh, between takes and we just gabbed and then I did his podcast and mm-hmm. we just had such a good time together and I I also thought that this show was so sweet and mm-hmm. it would have been my favorite show as a kid oh yeah it would have been my favorite show it had everything that I would love about a show like a little girl and her journey and drag queens I mean really yeah that was like the perfect show for my sweet 10 year old heart, you know? And, yeah. And, and, you know, I remember you and Rue talking on what's the tea about this. Rue was saying that your life's journey with your mom in New York is its own show. So we're still waiting on that too. Well, he inspired me to write the show. So I've been developing it actually with one of the writers of AJ and the queen. Oh my gosh. Um, And so, you know, but these kinds of things, you go through a process, you create the show you get out of pitch it and blah, 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 blah. But we, I'm definitely, I have figured out a structure and format for the show. And you know, the hooker story will be in it, of course. Good, good. Well, you have advanced audiences right here. We'll always, we'll always check it out for you. Give it another set of eyes. I love that so much. Iconic. Okay, my dose of drama. And I've talked about this on the podcast a lot recently, but finally, after months and months and months and months, we had an in-person experience and we were out safely, you know, at a at a gay bar and we ran into friend of the pod, Jackie Cox, also from RuPaul's Drag Race. But we met in real life after podcasting together. I don't even know how long nine ago. Nine months ago. Yeah. Nine months ago. It's the first time in the pandemic that we got to spend time with someone who was on the podcast. And it was amazing. And it might, I'm feeling dramatic about it because I miss in-person recording so much. There's just something about being in the room together, the energy. It's, ugh. But it was a comfort to know that we can have these virtual experiences and then one day spend time together in real life. And it's just, just as magical. So shout out to Jackie. Awesome. Love it. Can't wait to meet you in real life, Laura Bell. Yes. I would love to meet you in real life. We'll come out to Jersey. Wait, yeah. you'd be a great Jersey housewife. On on, New, on Real Housewives New Jersey, you'd be great. You'd add a, a fun flavor to that. You sound like my sister-in-law. And I said, over my dead body, never in a million years will that happen. <laughs> what about this Real Housewives? I was like, I won't be on any Real Housewives ever. She's like, why? I was like, because the dr- drama is generated. The shit ain't real. And... Life is so dramatic anyway. Why do you want to add more of it? (laughs) Very true. Very true. Unless it's fun drama. I love it. Well, Laura Bell, this has been a dream come true. And we know you have a busy day. So thank you for everything. We will be fans forever. Everyone should follow you on Twitter and Instagram. It's just at Laura Bell Bundy, right? Yeah, at Laura Bell Bundy. And please check out the album, Women of Tomorrow. It's available now on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, wherever you get your music, YouTubes. Amazing. This was a true delight. Thank you. You made our dreams come true. Well, it's been my pleasure. It was really fun. Thank you. you. All right, Connor, we'll see you next time. Drama. Drama.